Welcome to Kitchen Table Magic, a storytelling podcast featuring the amazing people of the Magic the Gathering community. I'm your host, Sam Tang. Join me and my guests as we share stories about what MTG means to us, how we got started playing Magic, the ups, the downs, the hilarious stories, and everything in between. In this episode, I'm speaking with Randy Bueller, Hall of Famer and former Vice President of Digital Gaming at Wizards of the Coast for Magic the Gathering. Randy has made a significant impact on Magic, not only as a pro player, but also developing the game at R&D. Randy worked on Invasions and Odyssey to name a few. We have him to thank for our lovely Fetchlands. Randy also has a long history on the commentary team. Although recently Randy retired from commentary, he is still an influential role in the community with Vintage Super League, Community Super League, and his streams on Twitch. I sat down with Randy last fall. I hope you enjoy my interview with the one and only Randy Bueller. Hi everyone, thanks for joining me on Kitchen Table Magic. I'm your host, Sam Tang. I am here today with the legendary Randy Bueller. Randy, how are you? I'm good. How are you? Thank you so much for having me over. We are sitting here in your basement with a beautiful collection of Magic cards. Yeah, I've done all right over the years. I have a lot of amazing sealed boxes of product, just a lot of great history. I'm kind of looking around. There's some beautiful uh, natural wood deck boxes as well. Oh yeah, warm wood. And we're also even uh, sitting on top of... Your kitchen table. <laughs> yeah, this was the kitchen table in my apartment when I was playing on the Pro Tour. So, I play tested for the Pro Tour on this very kitchen table. I was really surprised when you told me that. Yeah, I like the space. Well, Randy, I just wanted to jump right in and ask, where are you from and when did you start playing Magic? Uh, I guess I'm from Tennessee. It's it's weird. My family moved in uh, seventh grade. So, it's like halfway through. I don't know if I'm from Maryland. I don't have the accent of somebody from Tennessee. It's funny. My sister is two years younger than me, totally has the Southern accent. So, I guess my family was in Tennessee most of the time. And then I went to college at Vanderbilt, which is Nashville, Tennessee. So, I guess we'll say Tennessee. <laughs> okay. <laughs> oh, and when did I start playing Magic? I played college bowl in, uh, in college. So, I played high school bowl. It's basically academic bowl. Kind of imagine Team Jeopardy. Yes. You know, all the colleges would have teams and it's actually an eerily similar social scene to Magic because you've got these friends that you know that are scattered around the country and you talk to each other over the internet and then periodically you get together and you play tournaments against each other and see who wins, right? In between, you're playtesting. So, anyway, uh, it was my my college ball friends who got me into Magic. One guy, uh, Charlie Steinheis, would always have a summer gathering. He would, Everybody would like literally load up the buzzer sets and go over to his in-laws who had an orchard up on top of a mountain in Tennessee, just this gorgeous uh, orchard. So, the Cider House Rules was the, the name of this, you know, random, you know, buzzer competition. And, you know, over the course of a weekend, we'd kind of hang out and, and, you know, compete against each other for fun. And I go into the kitchen table and there is what I now realize was a sort of five-player free-for-all magic game going on at the kitchen table. I'm like, what's that? I, you know, they pull up a chair and sit me down and start explaining what's going on. And one guy is you know, sending green mana through his if biff for free. And it was this, this would have been 94. Yeah, I didn't get in at the very beginning, but I think this is 94. And then they kind of sent me off to face the world with an all commons deck, sort of leftover cards. Maybe it was 95. It was Fallen Empire's card was, I think, the most recent set at that point. And then, uh, I got back to college and my roommate had like one deck of cards that his previous roommate had just like abandoned when he moved out. So then it was me and Jason, Jason Schwengler, uh, who were just kind of playing basically just against each other. And, you know, an arms race ensued. Uh, yeah, we just started buying packs and building cards and 
I was off to the races. That's so interesting that you mentioned that when it's a larger group of people playing magic, it's just kind of like janky, crazy things are happening. But yeah. when the dynamic shifts between, you know, one-on-one, there's an, <laughs> there's an arms race. Totally. I rem- <laughs> my favorite part of the arms race is I remember the icy manipulator detente. Ah. We agreed that neither one of us would acquire a third. It uh-huh. was like every icy manipulator went into every deck uh-huh. at this point. And so, you know, I had two and he had two and the card just seemed so overpowered at that point as, you know, we're just leveling up and learning how the game works. So, we had a detente. We, we agreed neither one of us would acquire another one. Does every old school magic player have an icy manipulator phase because i had one too yes <laughs> the card was the card was insane i mean it's really good especially you know in a just random pickup environment yes like before you start having real decks i mean eventually what happens is i saw like a poster for something called a pro tour qualifier mm-hmm. and then you know i started i found uh the usenet news groups was where you could find information about magic back sort of mid 90s and you know then i started seeing deck lists from ptqs and i started attending ptqs then it was all over right as soon as i got the i'm like oh there's tournaments like you can compete at this then it, my all my decks got way better and you know the the random local casual pickup games stopped really happening and so where was this when you went to I, w- I was in minnesota uh, i graduated from vanderbilt my double major it was in physics and philosophy mm-hmm. and so in grad school i was studying philosophy of science. So, University of Minnesota has a pretty good program. I went there, I got my master's there. And that's just happens to be where I was when I started playing Magic. And yeah, I played my first PTQ in Minneapolis. Uh, that's, you know, my first tournaments were in Minneapolis. And I top aided the first PTQ I played with basically a Necro deck that I had just downloaded off a of Usenet news group. I'm like, oh, this deck seems great. I put it together. It's like, oh my God. It's just this sort of, you know, eye-opening moment to see how good that deck was. I, it's funny, I had a similar moment. One of the first tournaments I played in uh, in Minneapolis, it was the tournament happened at a beekeeper store. It was like <laughs> this giant warehouse space. This guy clearly, you know, his day job, he was a beekeeper and he was selling honey. And he just like, there was this glass case where there was honey and then there were singles. And the warehouse space had tables that had been converted into a tournament space, right? This is, you know, 1995 and maybe it was 96, something like that. So, I go to play this just random tournament, you know, it's standard, which was at the time was called Type 2. I had this, you know, green-white deck, Elves seemed good, you know, I'm using my Lanor Elves to accelerate into Sarah Angels, this kind of kind of deck. And my roommate Jason had said, well, throw in this Armageddon card, this card looks good. So, I throw one copy, I owned one copy of Armageddon, I threw it in my deck, and I play this game where I'm like, okay, Elf, turn three, earn him Jin. Turn four Armageddon. And I'm like, I've got a four five in play. My opponent has no lands. Oh my God. Like, it's just one of these. Wow, this deck's amazing. I looked down at my hand. I'm like, I really got to take the killer bees out of this deck now. <laughs> <laughs> you know, killer bees is green mana for plus one, plus one. So you're supposed to just, you know, three mana, oh one creature with forest breathing, I guess you'd call it. Not very good in an Armageddon deck. So stumbled into the Ernageddon strategy more or less on my own but the killer bees did not did not make the cut in that deck that is too funny and it was so ironic because you're sitting in a beekeeper's warehouse right? staring at killer I know, bees right? no that was definitely one of my early tournament memories that's too funny i was talking to brian david marshall and he was talking about how back in the day deck lists were a prized possession it was like secret tech oh yeah oh yeah yeah yeah. aaron forsyth was really articulate about that in some of the articles he wrote about it. you know people disappear into their basements and distilling new tech and then unleashing it on the world and you know tech wants to be free but you've got to kind of try to keep it reined in yeah and so you downloaded this necro deck off of usenet and then it just kind of blew your mind yeah no that's totally fair 
Yeah, then, uh, I mean, the way the story goes from there, I moved from Minneapolis to Pittsburgh. Basically, my wife and I had had met at Vanderbilt in Nashville, and we went to separate grad schools. She was in Pittsburgh at Carnegie Mellon. I went to Minneapolis uh, at University of Minnesota. So, to work on my PhD, I transferred. I got my master's. I spent two years in Minnesota. We decided this sucked. So, moved to Pittsburgh, got married, and uh, I was working on my PhD at the University of Pittsburgh, sort of a mile down the street from Carnegie Mellon. But of course, I had to seek out who the good local magic players were. Right. And it's funny. So, my wife and I went to a two-headed giant tournament. Mm-hmm. Uh, we were playing together and just got absolutely destroyed by Eric Lauer. And, you know, the guy he had grabbed from CMU, a guy named Pete. And anyway, so Eric said, why don't you come to Carnegie Mellon? We always play in Sired Hall. And so, that's how I kind of met the guys from Team CMU who became my playtest circle for uh, for all the Pro Tours I played. Wow. Yeah, I was wondering how you got to CMU. Yeah, well, I mean, yeah. it's, it's like I said, my wife was yeah. in to grad school at CMU. Yeah. I was a mile down the road at Pitt. And uh-huh. when I got to Pittsburgh, like, I went to the Pitt Student Union first and I found the Magic players, but it's this multiplayer free-for-all scene. I'm like, okay. I mean, I get that's awesome, but it's not my scene, right? I, at that point totally had the tournament bug i really wanted to find where the where the you know show me the tournament players show me the you know the guys who are trying to distill secret tech and unleash it on the world and right hilariously one of those guys in that multiplayer free-for-all game is aaron forsyth (laughs) (laughs) and so like yeah small world right I go up to, he loves to tell the story of, you know, when I eventually win the Pro Tour and Aaron's like, that guy won a Pro Tour? <laughs> what am I doing here? I could win a Pro Tour if that guy can. So, that's kind of when Aaron made the switch to start playing competitively. That is too funny. And how did you qualify for a Pro Tour Chicago? Uh, yeah. So, I showed up in Pittsburgh. I found the CMU guys. I was the one with the car and the motivation. I started driving us all to PTQs. And uh, it took me most of a year to qualify. You know, I was driving to PTQs, I don't know, once a month, a couple times a month. Uh, Lauer was the first guy to win one. Lauer was just, he's funny, you talk about Brian David Marshall. He would hold these uh, these gray matter events. He, he, was, he owned Neutral Ground at the time and he put together this, you know, gray matter was his organized play company, I guess. You know, they would go to Philadelphia, they would go to these places and have these, you know, thousand dollar tournaments or whatever. And so we would drive, we drove from Pittsburgh to Philadelphia. There was one where the morning was like a sealed deck for a Juzam gin. And then there was whatever the main event was in the afternoon. And then the end of the day would be whoever had had done well in the previous events would come to the end of the day. And Lauer just swept all of them. <laughs> he won the Juzam gin, you know, he won the, the the random standard tournament and then he got into the top eight. And, you know, the, Brian remembered is very vividly, you know, Eric just shows up. And, and Eric's, I don't know if you've met Eric, he's this crazy, they called him the mad genius of magic at the time. He's got, you know, crazy hair, sort of math, math grad student type of guy. Never would have left of his apartment if I didn't show up, knock on the door and drag him to these tournaments. But I feel like I kind of made Eric, which is fun. I mean, <laughs> he made so me cool. too. Like he was, he was the genius behind a lot of our deck building innovation. That anyway, so, so cool. I've got this crowd. We're going to PTQs. The one that I finally uh, qualified win was actually in Virginia. It was down sort of, you know, Tongo Nation territory. You know, I, David Mills, Mike Long, those guys were all playing in those PTQs. But it was, uh, it was a two-spotter, so I only had to win the semifinal. And I was playing – it was Mirage Block Constructed. I was playing a Sansa Poise deck. So, if you have Equipoise in play and – Equipoise gives everything phasing. Sands of Time is – this bizarro artifact that if it's tapped, it, uh, God, I can't, I'm not even sure I can remember how the lock worked, but basically you could phase all your opponent's permanents out of play, ah. which was pretty good. And you would deck them because they essentially had no permanence forever because of this, the sands of time equipoise lock. The hilarious part is 
you could lose the loss of life. If somebody could go like land, dark ritual, you know, Karavik spite you or something, they could actually hit you for five. And so I'm playing my opponent and he's playing for this. Like he's playing to, to Karavik spite me or whatever the lo- loss of life thing was. I think it was Karavik spite. And I had this obscure sideboard card called Soul Echo. It's like XWW. And when you take, when you take damage, like you can't lose life, but damage comes off the Soul Echo. When the Soul Echo runs out of counters, then it goes away. So basically they have to deal the damage to the Soul Echo first. The thing was though, loss of life didn't take counters off the Soul Echo. So I have a Soul Echo with one counter on it. I'm basically immune to loss of life effects. Uh-huh. And he's got no way to deal damage because he can't get any creatures to attack with. It was the trump card to beat loss of life. Wow. And my opponent just had no idea what was going on. And, you know, eventually does the Caravex Spite trick. And I point to the, the Soul Echo. I'm like, I don't, I don't lose any life. I'm fine. And he just scoops his cards up and, and walks away. He's like, all right, you got me. You got me locked. <laughs> what he didn't realize is like, I have, I only have one life at this point. Like it took me so long to set the lock up. Like the reason I'm vulnerable to Caravex spite is I'm only on one life. And the way I deck him is I'm supposed to use wand of denial and pay two life to put a card from his library into his graveyard. Like if he does nothing, he's going to deck me. Oh, like I literally, this game is lost except my opponent doesn't know what's going on. And once his plan fails, he just scooped and walked away. In a game that he was going to win, like literally he just plays Drago for 30 turns. He's going to deck me. Oh my gosh. Yeah, crazy. That's right. Because you're at one life. You cannot pay the two life. I can't pay the two life. I can't actually deck him. Like he's going to deck me by one card because I don't have, yeah, just, and you know, the deck played Steel Golem. So sometimes you could play Creature, but it like, it wasn't going to work out that game. It was just, I got into this, backed into this corner where I couldn't actually win the game, but my opponent didn't know that and conceded to my lock. And that's so interesting, Randy, that you knew what was going on. Oh, yeah. But you had to just kind of have this poker face and just really kind of hang back for a bit. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. People, people made a lot more mistakes back before Magic Online was around. Like, between Magic Online and sort of all the strategy websites that have come around, I mean, I've been talking about Usenet news groups. Like, the dojo is just starting to exist at this point in my history, right? The dojo is sort of the beginning. And I mean, everything is really descended from the dojo. But yeah, people legitimately didn't know what was going on. I mean, it was even more true in draft where you would just, you know, you would booster draft with people who just didn't really have eight friends who wanted to booster draft and hadn't really practiced. And they would show up to the pro tour and you play against people who just didn't know what they were doing. So interesting. Different time. I want to talk about your Pro Tour Chicago win because in that finals round, that also kind of happened as well. You were kind of like, hmm, I'm on the the back heels here. And then you pulled out a win. Yeah, that game was crazy. I can't imagine there's very many times where somebody made the play to win the Pro Tour and was surprised that it worked. (laughs) Like that can't have happened very often. Like I I literally can't think of another opportunity. And I've watched a lot of Pro Tour finals over the years. Yeah. So the PTQ story I just told, that was me qualifying for Pro Tour Chicago. Right. First Pro Tour I play, um, there's actually a Grand Prix in between. It's kind of funny. We go to Grand Prix Toronto. It's me, Mike Turian, Eric Lauer, Dan Silberman, which is essentially the beginning of Team CMU. And Turian and Silberman had just gotten to CMU. They're freshmen. We go up. Everybody in the car top eights the GP except me. <laughs> <laughs> and Silberman actually top eighted with my Sansa Poise deck that I qualified with. Uh-huh. This, is, this is the second ever uh, North American Grand Prix. Uh, Brian Kibler winds up winning it, interestingly. Anyway, so that's when we became Team CMU. People were noticed that like this carload of people from Pittsburgh, three out of four of them top eight at the GP. It's okay, Team CMU. Now we go to the Pro Tour. We're kind of like, right, we're Team CMU. We all put Team CMU hats on. I think my Team CMU hat is right there. Oh, you I was still, yeah, there's of the hat. Of course, I still have the hat I was wearing when I wore the Pro Tour. Yeah, I wore it to all the events back then. So yeah, we go to the Pro Tour. My thought was... 
I just want to put in all the work. And, you know, if I'm not good enough to compete at that level, fair enough. I can't compete at that level. My goal was top 32, which is what you needed to get an invite to the next one. And I put in a ton of work. I mean, I was the guy who had all the gauntlet decks and, you know, I would show up at Sired, Sired Hall. We're playing basically in the, in the lobby of a classroom building outside the computer lab. And I had all this gauntlet of decks and, you know, Eric would wander in after he was done with class and he would have some crazy idea. And, you know, he would basically, he would proxy up decks by putting little slips of paper inside the sleeves of yeah. my gauntlet decks and then like at the end of the night those the ideas that were terrible i would just sort of secretly take all the slips of paper out and they would vanish into the ether and the ones that were good i would swap in the real cards um but so we did that for a while and i think the crucial thing is um extended was a new format at the time the mm -hmm. first time extended happened was at worlds in 97 and i managed to track down the best extended decks from worlds which was tricky like you it wasn't trivial to just find what were the best performing extended decks at worlds that I mean, top eight was standard well type two at the time but so I found these extended decks. I had that gauntlet. We're testing against that gauntlet. And, you know, Eric is basically theory crafting Necropunch. He's like, why do people not play all the demonic consultations? Like, don't you want to build a deck that knows it can have Necropotence in play? And the real insight for our Necro deck was we'll play four Necros and we'll play four copies of demonic consultation. And then we'll build the deck, assuming you're always going to get the skull. Now you can build this super cheap mana curve. It's all, you know, pump knights and hymns, and you don't need any expensive cards because your, your constraint is mana. You never run out of cards. You just might run out of mana. Um, they had just banned Hypnotic Spectre. Mm -hmm. And so one of the weird things that happened is like for a while we had obviously, so, the crazy part is we wound up taking out the dark rituals. Yeah. Because there's no good three drop. You can't go ritual hippie if hippie is banned. Right. The only thing you're really doing with these dark rituals, I mean, sometimes fine. You do a pump knight and a him on turn two or, you know, for turn one necro is okay. But you're basically just sinking them into drain lives. And we found that the matchup we were worried about was counterpost, sort of blue white control with Keldron outpost as the kill. That was the, you know, there's no way to blow up the outpost. It gives this sort of long-term advantage that you can't really disrupt. And they had force of wills. Mm -hmm. Like that's a perfectly legal card at the time. So if they could force a will your necropotence and then counter, if they could, or, and or, if they could counterspell your drain life was the key thing. If you sink a couple rituals into a drain and they counter it, you're just so they could actually win a game, even if you had necro. Anyway, we wound up taking out the rituals so that we wouldn't be sinking so many spells into the same thing that could be counterspelled. It still feels weird to me in retrospect, but I don't know. I mean, it worked. The deck felt like it had this huge advantage over the field. We go in with a deck with four consoles. We're always potent. I know what everybody's playing because I've got the deck list. Like I literally play like Janosch Kuhn had this, you know, blue red deck that was one of the top performing decks. I literally got paired against Janosch Kuhn himself, who had just run back the same 75. I'm like, I know exactly what your deck does. This is awesome. So felt like I did a lot of good prep work going into that tournament. Felt like we had a I mean, we definitely had the best Necro deck at that tournament, and I think we had the best actual deck at that tournament, honestly, by a decent amount. I mean, it's not always going to be the case that the best deck for any given tournament does win, but I mean, I think that's what happened there. The The Tongo blue-red blue, uh, white control deck was decent, but I mean, I, th I would run that matchup back again. I think I was advantaged versus them. I think I was advantaged versus the field. You know, I didn't get unlucky. I, you know, I probably did get lucky in a couple of spots. I don't know. It was awesome. So... I make the top eight. I mean, at this point, I'm just playing with house money, right? My goal was top 32. <laughs> yeah. I got my invite. That's that's all I care about. You know, people are buzzing about this other guy in the top eight, some guy named John Finkel that I didn't really know, who's <laughs> finally made his first top eight. So I guess he's supposed to be good, but eh, whatever. He's on the <laughs> other side of the bracket. They did not share deck lists at the time. 
So I didn't play test. Like I wanted a good night's sleep. I went out, I had a good meal. I got a good night's sleep. I, we didn't have exact deck list to test against anyway. I felt so confident in my deck and I had, you know, I'd played against some of the matches before anyway. So I'm just like, I'm good. You know, went to bed, got a good night's sleep, got up. Um, the quarterfinals was this, was the, in my head, the scariest one. Um, it's a necro mirror. So I'm looking against a guy who's got, you know, I don't think his necro decks as good as mine. Doesn't ha- he's only got two or three consults. He's got, um, I think he had necrotals. That was the thing most people had was they had necrotals in that deck. Mm. And I'm like, why would you spend four mana? I'll play terror in my sideboard. If I want a necrotal, I'll just bring in a terror and I'll necro for terror and another card. This is just better. So yeah, I'm playing against uh, one of the Austin Knights guys and it goes to game five. And he hymns me on turn two where I'm holding my Necropotence. Like I'm on the play. I'm going to play Necro next turn and win from there. And he hymns. I've got four cards, you know, which include, I think there's two lands, but there's a Necro. And if he hits, if he hymns the Necro, I'm going to lose this game. And that for me, I'm basically flipping a coin for the quarterfinal match. He hymns two cards. He misses the Necro. I play the turn three Necro. I win game five, advance to the semifinals. Wow. Yeah. Semifinals is against Max Suver, who had this, uh, water spout gin deck it was crazy <laughs> um but i have pyroblast in my sideboard i yes. just destroy him in the semis so i get to the finals against david mills you know tango nation guy he's got multiple top eights at this point generally regarded to be kind of a sketchy player but i mean i'm just i, I didn't see anything untoward there he's got a good deck i like to match up frenetic afrit is kind of annoying like i have to kill basically i have to kill the frenetic until he loses a coin flip is usually how it plays out but I still like the matchup. I think my terrors can hit his uh, wildfire emissaries. I feel like he's just slow. So we get to game four. I'm up 2-1. And I discover that he sideboarded in Dwarven Miner. Dwarven yeah. Miner is a 1-2 creature. But the important part is 3-mana tap, destroy target non-basic land. Yeah. My deck is... I mean, it's, it's fetch land, dual land based. The fetch lands are the mirage fetches because like onslaught hasn't happened yet, but there are no wastelands. So you could build these awesome, like even though the mirage fetches come into play tapped, I didn't have one drops anyway. I was all twos, but I've got bad lands. I've got scrub, scrub lands. I don't have a ton of basics. I happen to have drawn two of my eight swamps, which is great. It's how I'm able to operate. So I, I go to two mana and then I have lake of the dead is the other land I have. So. Turn three, he plays this Dwarven Miner. I've got Lake of the Dead in my hand. So Swamp Swamp. I've also got multiple Pump Knights. I think I played a turn two Pump Knight. I've got two, at least two more in my hand. I think I've got two more, but then I draw a third. I have the option to go tap Swamp Swamp, play Lake of the Dead, sacrificing one Swamp, tap the Lake to sack the other Swamp. That's six mana, right? Mm -hmm. I can drain life Dwarven Miner for four, but he's a Force of Will deck. And I assumed he had four Force of Wills in his four Force of Will deck. We don't know deck list. Why would you not? Turns out he only has two Force of Wills in his list. Huh. I know. How does he only have... If I'd known he only had two Force of Wills in the list, I would have drained life to the Dwarven Miner on turn three. I'd go down to just a Lake of the Dead. But in my head, I'm so terrified that he's going to Force a Will... The, the, he's going to force away my drain life. Then he's going to untap and Dwarven Miner my Lake of the Dead. Now I have literally zero lands. Right. I'm just dead. So I'm like, I'm not going to go all in, sacrifice two lands, use my drain life to try to, to trope to kill Dwarven Miner. I'll just play some Pump Knights and see how the game evolves. So 
I play out a pump knight. I play out another pump light. He doesn't, I mean, he's not blocking with his one, two. Right. I'm getting in a little bit of damage, um, but I'm, I'm not drawing any more basics. I'm not drawing a better answer to Dwarven Miner. You know, I'm hoping to draw a Contagion or a Terror. You know, I'm starting to think like, should I sideboard in all my Terrors? I think I had some Terrors in the deck, but not all three from my sideboard. So I'm thinking a little bit about sideboarding. I'm kind of playing this game out to see what happens. But, you know, now I've got three pump knights. I draw a fourth pump knight. I'm just attacking with these two ones and you know, his life total is whittling down a little bit he's got a wildfire emissary so now he can block and kill my pump knights um there's one turn actually where i mean if you go back and watch the commentary the announcers think i'm an idiot but i play a scrubland that's right and i play the scrubland because it's dead anyway like i'm gonna have to discard i may as well see if he's gonna make a mistake maybe he'll forget right right maybe he'll forget to use his dwarven miner whatever the scrubland is dead to me doesn't hurt me to play it and let him dwarven miner it because it has no value the announcer's like oh what did he do i'm like the scrubland has no value anyway at the time where i'm gonna play non-basics i have this lake of the dead i still have lake of the dead drain life in my hand so I play the scrubland. He just sits up in his chair and like greedily miners it immediately. <laughs> yeah. Like what actually happens, I think, is I lulled him into false sense of security. Mm. Like I wish I could claim total credit for that. Like I'm going to claim credit. I knew the scrubland was vulnerable to the miner when I played it. And I was just trying to see if I could get him to, to do something stupid. And I mean, I guess I did. I didn't say, oh, I'm going to get it. I'm going to lull him into a false sense of security and trick him into, you know, not, not doing drain life math. But whatever. It works out in practice that he sees me as so desperate. He starts plotting for the kill. He's got whatever his expel was. Maybe it's actual fireball in his hand. And he, on the crucial turn, what happens is I attack and he blocks one pump knight. He can chump block with Dwarven Miner if he wants to. He chooses not to, which means he lets a knight hit him and knock him down to four. And four is kind of a magic number. If you've got Swamp Swamp, like anybody who played Lake of the Dead Drain Life back in the day, you see Swamp Swamp, add Lake of the Dead, add Drain Life. Like I went through it when I talked about killing the miner. That's a four mana Drain Life. So he's prepared to untap, attack, fireball me for the win. He's got like, you know, eight land in play by this point or some some such. And I'm just like in my head, all right, shrug, you know, I'm going to make him show me that Force of Will. Like I put him on Force of Will way back on turn three. Time to make him show me if he's got it or not. Like, doesn't cost me anything. I'm about to lose anyway. So, I go through the motions. I point the drain life for four at his head. And he just starts stammering. He's like, that works? Like, he hadn't done the math. He didn't realize I could get off a four-point drain life. And, you know, he's trying to stay at a lightning bolt range. Because I play lightning bolts. And he thinks going down to four is safe. So, he's like, that works? I'm like, you don't have a counter spell? <laughs> oh, my God. I just won the Pro Tour. You know, just kind of rock back in my chair. Throw my hands up. Shot that I actually won the Pro Tour on this play. That's right. If you see the video coverage, the commentators kind of are like, my gosh, Randy's on the back foot. Randy's on the back foot. Right. And, and, and you... And even <laughs> I thought I was losing too. And even you said, you were like, I was thinking about sideboard options right. <laughs> at that point. Yeah, I'm going to win game five anyway, even if he does have the counterspell. That's my story. I'm sticking to it. <laughs> That's right. And then you basically have a whole bunch of knights, Order of the Ebon Hand, yeah, yeah, yeah. and then and uh, just two swamps and Lake of the Dead. And you were, you were keeping that Lake of the Dead in your hand. You were just really, you were really setting it up and you had, and you were looking at Drain life and you just threw that scrub land away you yeah. just and you were like hey, i've got eight i've got to discard it was that. irrelevant <laughs> it was irrelevant but uh that was really interesting and you know this is something that we will talk about also later it's just like you know there are several times randy in your competitive history that you think very differently about the game that mm. you're not willing to give up even though you're behind you're like fine sure if if it's played optimally this is what it is but also the environment back then was that players did not play optimally 
optimally. It was like a very few number of players played optimally. That's fair. The three stories you told me about, you know, your opponent scooping and then also the finals of Pro Tour Chicago. It reminds me a lot of your very famous call of the game when you are saying char to the face, top deck, <laughs> lightning helix. And even in if you, if you look at that video, when you and your fellow commentator are discussing it, mm-hmm. there's a part where you go, no, you char to the face. You, you just very dismissive. You're like, no. And right. people you, need were, a, you need a plan to win the game. Right. right. Mike Flores is my partner at the time. And, you know, Flores is basically making a play to survive another turn. Yeah. What are you surviving for? Like, figure out what the game looks like when you win it and then play for that yes play to your outs yes and this was not something that was well understood back then no, from, it's a true. Magi- it's very from a true. magic theory standpoint but you embodied that very very early on in your career yeah i hadn't thought about it completely that way but it makes sense yeah absolutely and that is what really i think you think so differently about the game so innovatively from what most other people have thought about and it's contributed to your commentary your analysis even in perhaps even in the development of the game Sure. Yeah. And so I want to ask you next, Randy, when did you decide to go into development and design of the game? Uh, Mark Rosewater asked me if I if I might be interested in it. I mean, he was the guy who from R and D who would go to all the Pro Tours. You know, I win my first Pro Tour. I you know I wound up Rookie of the Year. I wound up cha- basically chasing John Finkel for Player of the Year. I was one. I was one of the first people to start flying to Grand Prix to try to get Pro points. Uh-huh. That was just wasn't a thing that people did. I decided, okay, Player of the Year is my goal. I, I you know I was in the lead with one Pro Tour to go. <laughs> um, Finkel wins that Pro Tour, and we go to Worlds where he's got a small lead on me. He and I I'm in top eight contention until the last round. Like in my head it's literally the last round of the swiss at worlds where i get knocked out of the player of the year race nobody you know everybody thinks finkel wins it by a mile because he also made top eight and you know i think lost in the semis so it doesn't look close on paper but it, it was very close the point being i am one of the game stars at this point and you know when they're looking for people to star build and you know rosewater asked me to do commentary at that world is when i do commentary for the first time you know mark would always wait to see who got eliminated you know he would talk to me after events about you know what i thought of the cards did i have any advice about you know banned and restricted list to Decisions. And so I just had this relationship with Mark that uh, that came up relatively quickly. And yeah, I mean, they, when essentially what happens is Urza Saga happens, and this set is just broken beyond belief. You know, as as a you know a guy trying to break cards and win Pro Tours was amazing. Like we just we had the best deck at Pro Tour Rome and should have won it. You know, Grand Prix Vienna, we were the only people who ever got a card emergency banned. Like we just. <laughs> And R&D realizes, geez, that like the level of play amongst the people competing at our events is just significantly higher than the level inside R&D now. You know, you go back a couple years and, you know, when they would play random pickup side events at PT1, like the R&D guys would win. Like the, the initial game designers, you know, Richard Garfield used to be one of the best sealed deck players in the world. And, you know, the, the world sort of caught and passed those guys and they realized they needed to start hiring off the Pro Tour and to sort of flesh out their development team. So... I was essentially the first wave of that. You know, they they posted a couple of positions as a reaction to Urza Saga, essentially. And uh, Mark asked me if I wanted to apply. And, you know, I just started thinking about it. There wasn't really enough money at the time that you could make a career out of it. So when it was, oh, here's a career, right? Here's a job that has a real salary and benefits. And I started thinking about it. And I thought it would be cool, too. So... It was essentially at the time it came down to there isn't really enough money to make a living as just a professional player. Like there's no, there's no players club. There's not even a master series. There's just the prize money at the Pro Tours and the Grand Prix. That's all the money that there was in the system. And it's like, all right, you know, I won like 
50 grand my first year, but then my second year I won like 15 or 20 mm-hmm. and I'm traveling over the world. You know, I you know make 10 trips overseas off that. It's not enough money to actually really make a living. So yeah, I mean, when the job was offered, I didn't, didn't hesitate. Yeah. I find out of course that they're contemplating, you know, <laughs> adding a lot of money to try to create a class of professional magic players. But by then I was on the inside. <laughs> Randy, your first set was... Invasion. Invasion. Yeah, yeah. Wedge from the Mana Source and I, we kind of joked around a little bit that uh, Invasion was like Return to Ravnica beta. <laughs> it was like yeah. when you guys first started to really jam all these different colors together. Yeah, no, it was, a, it was a cool set. And the thing that I remember most vividly is that I walked in and I immediately had some credibility, right? Because I was coming off the Pro Tour because, you know, I finished top 10 in the Player of the Year race that second year as well, even without a Pro Tour top 8. And... You know, they were listening to me. They actively wanted to hear what I thought. And they're just like, guys, your big creatures aren't good enough. Like, they took Sarah Angel out of the core set because they thought she was above the curve. Like, she's unplayably bad. What are you <laughs> talking about? She's not good enough. Like, you you can let the five-mana creatures be dramatically bigger and better than what you're doing. And you start to see that you see cards like, you know, Rith in Invasion itself. Like, we pushed that dragon cycle. It was like, okay, let's push this until it's actually good enough to get played at the Pro Tour. We want people playing dragons at the Pro Tour. You know, Brian Kibler attacking with a Rith in Enchanted with an armadillo cloak. That was my dream. That's what I wanted that set to do. And so, yeah, I get on the inside. We start really pushing the big creatures. I think that the the multi-lands is another thing that people look at those invades, like the, the, the multi-lands and invasion, that comes into play tap dual lands. And like nowadays, they're like random uncommon limited cards. Right. At the time, those lands were great. Yeah. Those lands were way better than any multi-land that they had printed. I mean, the pain lands are probably better from Ice Age. I mean, it comes down to, you know, how big a drawback do you think comes into play tapped is? But they hadn't done anything even as good as the pain lands since then. You go back and look at what were people playing in Saga era, what were people playing in Masks era in particular? It's a lot of monocolor decks. That's right. Like, they would make lands that tap for colorless. That was what they thought the drawback was. So, they're like, here's Rashadden port, you know, random utility land. Nobody will play this. I'm like, no, you play monocolor so that you can play your Rashadden ports and your Dust Bowls and I think I was really good at pushing them. Like, like, if you want to do a multicolor set, you have to print good dual lands. And I had to talk them into comes into play tapped original dual land. So, I mean, that to me is actually the biggest contribution I made to Invasion was just getting them to think about lands as, look, it doesn't matter if, you know, they were, they, I think they had this fear that magic would degenerate into everybody just playing five color decks. <laughs> like, and you saw a hint of that when there was like City of Brass and, uh, Oh, God, what's the Mirage one? Uh, Gemstone Mine. Yeah. Like, you saw Five Color Green was a deck. People would play Bird of Paradise, City of Brass, Gemstone Mine, and then just the best cards from every color. Right. Like, that deck won one tournament once, and I think R&D panicked. (laughs) Whatever. Like, do two two color lands? Fine. We won't go with awesome five color lands, but you should push the hell out of two color lands. You want people to be able to cast their spells. Magic is just more fun when people can cast their spells, and magic is more fun when people play giant monsters. And, uh, you know almost betraying the the sort of spike competitor in me. It's like, also, your counter spells are too good. Stop making counter. I think they knew that. Like, I ran the table at Worlds back-to-back years with Mono Blue Control, sort of Drago. People call it Bueller Blue, CMU Blue. Should be Cuneo Blue is what it should be. But yeah, so I think you'll see starting with Invasion, the spells start getting steadily worse, the big creatures start getting steadily better, and the lands start getting much better at just letting people cast spells in two-color decks. 
Yeah. And I also think that in the invasion, all the different color combinations gave players more access to identity in the color pairings and perhaps even oh, sure. wedges. And that was just like really great. That was one of the things that Wedge and I talked about. We were just like, oh my gosh, we love the color combinations. It was like <laughs> a color cycle of um, zombie, like barbarian zombie and had pro white or something right, right. like that. And it was just like this, it was really fun and it was really flavorful. And um, I started playing in Urza Saga and that block <laughs> and Mercadian Mass and all that stuff. I It was really broken and really crazy, but it was very monocolored. And I think that was a great fundamental time for me to start playing Magic because I was like, one color, stick with it. What does it do? <laughs> Learn how to play. And then all of a sudden with Invasion Apocalypse, multicolor things came out. And I was like, whoa, yeah. the, the possibilities. Yeah. I mean, it was already a multicolor set when I got there, but I feel really proud of the work I did sort of as a developer, yeah. essentially fleshing out that design and getting it into a spot that was good for the game. And I mean, whatever. I mean, everybody's the hero of their own narrative, right? But I mean, I look at magic and I see, okay, Tempest was too fast. Saga was broken in half. Masks, they were terrified and just <laughs> didn't want to print any good cards. But like, we started to get the balance right. We started to get where like, you can have a compelling design vision and you can flesh out the development in a place that makes sense. And so, you know, essentially my run uh, is Invasion into Odyssey into Onslaught. You know, those are those are my first three blocks and felt like, I, I don't know, I'm very proud of them. There was a difference between design and development. Could you touch on a little bit what oh, yeah. kind of what the different roles were um i that goes all the way back to richard like richard garfield had this idea that you know anybody else who designed a game like magic they could have just owned it right they could have just run it i mean owned it metaphorically they could have just been the the czar in charge of everything and that's that wasn't richard he very much wanted to set it up i mean the thing i always heard was there should be two sets of eyes like no no card should go out unless two sets of eyes have seen it and so from the beginning you know well i mean once richard leaves his his job and comes to wizards full time you know he set up r&d as the designers are in charge of making the car the game fun like big picture vision let's figure out what the fun part is and then the developers are in charge of all the fine tuning and all the numbers and all the balancing let's make sure it plays well and so you want designers who maximize fun and developers who maximize balance and you need a different skill set for that. Really, what I think my legacy is at R&D is I actually fleshed out the development process. Like They had this split in their heads. They had people they called designers and people they called developers. And you know they had this idea that you know no designer can call their own kids ugly. You need somebody else to say, look, that baby, that baby's ugly. I'm sorry, <laughs> dude. It's out of the set. Here, give me a different card. So, I think I was very good at that, you know, picking out the ugly babies, picking out the good. And But the even more important was saying, this idea is awesome. Do more of this. Um, but it wasn't just sort of me as a, you know, entry-level developer, but I started rising up the the ranks where I would be running the development teams. I was running the entire development process. You know, I was I got the, the director of Magic R&D position was essentially created so that I could run... At that point, it was design, development, art. But there's a development process now, right? There's, okay, there's spreadsheets and there's pointing and there's a bunch of stuff. Where, you know, the Future Future League was me. Like they had a, they called it a Future League where they would take current standard and like play three months into the future uh -huh. where it's like, we know what set's coming out next. Let's see what's going to happen. I'm like, that isn't far enough. Like you need to go into the future future. So it, what I took the future league and added an extra F so that we could actually be playing at a time where you can affect the guards. They were just, you know, it was early on and they had, uh, they had a, they had a great game, but they didn't have great development processes. And I mean, they still use a lot of the processes that I helped get started nowadays. That's very cool. And, you know, one of your big contributions was also as a lead developer of Onslaught. Sure. And one of the biggest things that come out of Onslaughts were the original allied colored fetch lands. Oh, yeah. You remember the story about letting people cast their spells and printing dual lands that are good enough? 
the fetch lands are just the next step there, right? I mean, comes into play. You're like, okay, game didn't break. In fact, these lands aren't even amazing. Like, we need to do better. So I don't remember who specifically put the card down. I what I remember is me pushing, saying, "All right, I want one. I want something that doesn't come into play tapped, but gives two different colors. How are we going to do this?" I mean, that was sort of the puzzle that I set. And I mean, I wish I could remember who specifically said, "Well, let's just." Strictly better than the Mirage Fetch Lands. Like, I played Mirage Fetch Lands in my Pro Tour winning deck. Like, they're just Onslaught Fetches, but they come into play tap. A race that comes into play tap part, now you've got this awesome card. And then in the Ravnica block, you guys decided to just make Shock Lands. Yeah. And that was like another one of those analogous conversations oh, yeah. that was nope we need we need to we need to get this out there and it needs to not be broken but it needs yeah, to work. Yeah, I don't I don't have specific memories about those mm. individual points. For me it was the trajectory. Yeah. You know, it was how are we going to set it up? Like we're back to a gold block again. We want to make sure people can cast their spells. Let's, you know, let's make sure we've got a good multi-land in here. Very interesting. And then also you also worked on Future Sight and Tarbogwife. Yeah. So by the time we get to Future Sight in the story, I've been essentially promoted out of day-to-day magic. Okay. Like Tarmogoyph is my turn. It's it's Turian's the guy who cut the third mana off of it and was like, eh, it's just a creature. We want to have we want to print good cards. Like I I don't I don't have every any memories about being specifically involved in the development of Tarmogoyph. Mm-hmm. I mean, I kind of think that I was involved in every magic set from Invasion through about Time Spiral. Mm-hmm. Um, but the rest of the Time Spiral block is when, you know, I had essentially been promoted up and out and was starting to work on some digital projects for the company. And yeah, I mean, Future Sight, I was still had the title Director of Magic R&D, but I mean, I, I honestly wasn't. I wasn't on the team. Mm-hmm. I would, if you think if you look, I'm credited as mm-hmm. director. I'm not credited as one of the team members. Got it. Got it. Time Spiral was also very cool. It was a special set. Yeah. Time Spiral. I mean, look, big picture. I think that the complexity pendulum swung too far, mm. right? If you read Rosewater articles, he talks about this all the time, mm. you know, between Time Spiral. Time Spiral was, it was a lot of fun for enfranchised players, but what it, accidentally did was I think that it made the barrier to entry for new players just too high. And I think Lorwyn does that in a different way, but has the same net effect. Like Lorwyn has so much board complexity. Like when you play a match with Lorwyn, like all the cards interact with all the other cards and there's all these activated abilities and, you know, new players just can't parse that board. Um, I mean, I remember it was actually uh, Peter Atkinson who was, you know, the Wizards president forever. He founded the company in his garage, literally Boeing engineer, founds Wizards of the Coast in his garage, tells Richard Garfield, I want you to design it do something we can play in between D&D sessions, something short. I, I can't really publish Robo Rally, but anyway, so that Peter Agassin, he played a match. He hadn't, you know, didn't play a lot of magic at that point. And he just, he literally threw up his hands, couldn't handle it. And we're like, <laughs> okay, this is bad. Like I said, I'm, I'm sort of drifting away from R&D at this point, but I mean, I'm still, I'm in the occasional conversation, could see what was going on. But I think for different reasons, both Time Spiral and Lorwyn Block just made the game too complicated for new players. It made it so that the barrier to entry was too high. And so there are people who like those sets, but, you know, I think that the pendulum needed to swing back towards simplicity. And so you see, you know, the new world order is, is what they would call it. You can certainly read that term in Rosewater columns. And it was correct to swing the pendulum back. So yeah, sure. Time spiral is fun. Um, I mean, in retrospect, I wish I had pushed it to be a little bit less complicated. And, you know, Future Sight is just kind of crazy. Maybe that's even farther out than, than Lorwyn stuff. But I mean, they're, they're a little bit different axes in terms of their complication. 
And with the new sets right now, I mean, this this podcast will be published in the future, so we won't date it too much. But uh, there was a very interesting tweet that you tweeted to Mark Rosewater about energy cars. Ah, sure, sure. And you said that I was the one who said no to them when they when he originally proposed them for Meriden. Yeah, well, I, well, I think what I said was I was the guy who had the had the conversation with him. Um, I mean, a lot of those are group decisions. Like, I think uh, Bill Rose was also very. Bill Rose is still the VP of R and D. Sort of was my boss for most of my run in R and D, and is still there. We play tested Mirrodin, and Mark just had a million mechanics. And you know, I was. It had already been determined that I would be the lead developer for the set. Mark was the lead designer for the set, and so Mark was inviting me to design playtests. And you know, as the lead developer, I'm you know I'm playing, I'm giving my feedback, and I'm just like, there's too much going on. Like this energy thing is super. I mean, it's interesting, but it just takes up so much space. You've got all these other mechanics going on. Like there isn't room for everything. Like you need to cut something. And you know, this energy one, it looks like sort of the bigger, more complicated, harder to get right thing. You know, we have to figure how to get it right anyway. Like, I think that's probably the one that should go. I mean, I know Mark also had similar conversations with Bill Rose, but but yeah, no, seeing it come back in Kaladesh is super cool. I mean, I, I like I said, I remember that early version and there was a lot of promise there. It just, it didn't fit with everything else that he was trying to do with that set. And, and you know, that's what I told him. That's fascinating. Fascinating. And I think it's going to work very well with these newer sets because it's just uh, thematically it works from a story standpoint, it works. And also mechanically, I think it also works. Yeah, it's a much better fit for Kaladesh than it would have been for Mirrodin. I wanted to change gears a little bit and talk to you about your role in commentary. Okay. Recently, you made an announcement that you won't be doing coverage anymore. And so, a lot of people are really sad about that. Yeah, no, I'm, I'm, I'm going to miss it too. It's just the actual commentary. Like if I could do commentary from my living room, that would be awesome. I could do that forever. And maybe I will, right? You certainly, I do my fair share of Twitch content generation. Uh, but I mean, the, the travel does add up. And it's also true that keeping up on formats is, is not trivial. Like it is hard to make sure you know what's going on. And it's particularly hard for pro tours where there is, you can't really just go look at other events and try out those decks. So, you know, not being allowed to play competitively definitely made it harder for me to keep up on formats. I don't know if I knew they could replace me with LSV, maybe I would have retired a while ago. (laughs) What kind of things do you have to do to prepare? I mean, what does the coverage team have to do to prepare? They have to go through the new set. They have to know, kind of memorize all the cards and mechanics. Yeah, no, I'm I'm super interested to see how Luis can do that job because I think what Luis is going to do is sort of what I always wished I could do, which is hang out with one of the playtest teams. Like, in order to actually be good at doing well, so I should take a step back. You should, when you look watch Pro Tour commentary or even Grand Prix commentary, you should think about the commentators as having two different jobs, right? There's very much there's a play-by-play guy or a host, and then there's sort of an analyst or, or a color commentator, whatever the names are. There's sort of one guy who is, you know, doing the hello and welcome and explaining just the mechanics and the play-by-play of what's going on. And there's another guy whose job is to sort of diagnose the board states and explain the strategy that's going on behind the actual cards, and so. I've done both jobs over the years. I mean, in, in Honolulu for the, for the Lightning Helix call, you know, I'm the play by play guy. And I don't know, maybe I tried to, bl- I've blurred the lines at times, but in, uh, in the last several years, you know, very much been, okay, you're the analyst, which means you need to understand everything the deck's trying to do. And you need to be able to sort of explain what the guy's trying to accomplish in any given situation, which if you've played the decks, you know, a good magic player. <laughs> can get that and, and can tell that story. But any, in order to be able to do that job well at the Pro Tour, it's like you need to be hanging out on a playtest team. You need to actually have played the decks before and just, 
I don't know. I feel like I learn a lot if I just have a deck in my hands and I just put myself in the situation. Let me just play a couple of games with a deck and I can start to understand, oh, this is what matters and this is why you're trying to do these other things. It can be tricky to do that if you've just literally never had the opportunity to play the decks because they're brand new. They didn't exist before. So I think LSV has proven that he's extremely good at that on Pro Tour Sundays, should be very good at that through the first couple of days as well. If he's on the coverage team, does that mean that he's not allowed to play Sanctioned Magic anymore? He has chosen to defer his Platinum status for a year in order to be on the commentary teams for the Pro Tours. So, no, it's not the case that being on the coverage team disallows you from playing Sanctioned Magic. But like from Watsi's point of view, they need a coverage team that's going to be there on Friday, right? So... You can't play Pro Tours if you're doing commentary on Friday. Right. And they essentially, I think they went to Luis and they said, look, we'll let you defer your platinum status for a year. And, you know, here's whatever. I don't know what they offered to pay him for to do the gig, but, you know, it's travel and some, some payment for the weekend itself. And, you know, he thought that would be fun to try for a year. So everyone is really looking forward to it. I think it's a good commentary team. The reason I can't play Sanction Magic, well, the reason I can't play Premier Events is because while I no longer work for Wizards, my wife still does. Ah, yes. So, it's I am bound by their employee play policy because the way they wrote their employee play policy is it also applies to immediate family members as well. Mm -hmm. And I don't know. They define immediate family. Everybody always asks the Reed Duke, Ian Duke question. They define immediate family as essentially the family you live with. So, husband, wife... Too close. Uh, you know, brothers who live on opposite sides of the country. Okay, that's far enough. To, that does not count as immediate family in their eyes. And then, sadly, your kids can't play in Sanction Magic? Correct. Oh. Well, it, they actually, I can now play Sanction Magic. I'm a lot, they changed the policy about, eight, I don't know, 18 months ago to where you can play Friday Night Magic. You can play, I think you can play events with like cash equivalent prizes of under $200. Okay. But you cannot play premier events. No GPs, no Pro Tours. Correct. Okay. No oh. events that I would care about. Like, <laughs> you don't want to get back into your good old days of five people around a kitchen table playing multiplayer jank? I mean, I wander down to the local store sometimes. Like, uh -huh. you know, they'll have a legacy tournament. You know, I've, I've got a legacy deck. I've, I actually won one of the local legacy tournaments. Well, I finished, sorry, I finished second. I did a split where I qualified for the neat new thing. So, it feels like I won it, but... <laughs> Well, I also wanted to talk to you about uh, you playing some Eternal formats. You oh, yeah. created Vintage Super League, which is a hit on Twitch. Yeah, that's been a lot of fun. And what got you to start that? Based on my role in the coverage team, I'd been looking at Twitch anyway. So this is, you know, three years ago or whatever. As soon as they announced Vintage Masters coming for Magic Online, like that was the point where they were first, there were going to be Moxes and Black Lotus available in Magic Online. I mean, instantaneously, I knew I was going to draft the hell out of that format. I was going to acquire a set of Power 9. I was going to start playing Vintage. You know, I've been playing Vintage since basically, I mean, probably not 95, but 96. You know, I traded my way up to my first set of Power. You know, I would play the local Vintage tournaments. I would drive to the random, whatever random Vintage things. You know, I drove up to BDM's Neutral Ground store. They would have a Vintage tournament. I would drive up there. So, you know, I was playing Vintage back in the 90s. It's funny. I remember I went to a pro tour in Japan and like the side events area had been taken over by this bazaar, like B-A-Z-A-A-R of, uh, just people trading vintage cards. Oh. Like, there were no vintage cards in Japan. So they would sell for twice what you could buy them for in the States. So my first set of power, I just sold it for yen, came home and then rebought it. And I'm just up like, I don't know, a thousand dollars or something. Wow. Yeah. I guess I should have bought two sets of power looking at what's happened <laughs> since this would have been 99, I guess, the first uh, Pro Tour in Japan. 
anyway, so I've always had a set of power. I've always played vintage. You know, even when I was at Wizards, I would play unsanctioned vintage tournaments around mm-hmm. the area because I was only banned from sanctioned play. So <laughs> if somebody would have like a 10 proxy tournament or whatever, oh, that's unsanctioned because the proxy. So I could go and I, I would go. I, I won, I've won almost a second set of power that way. 90s Randy did trade for a set of Black Border Dual Lands. So he, he did all right with what has happened to vintage card prices. That's awesome. In the last 20 years. So, Vintage Masters is announced for Magic Online. There's no doubt in my mind I'm going to play this format. And I'd always, I'd been looking at Twitch. Like, I hadn't done any streaming myself. I'd just been doing the commentary gig. But it sure felt like streaming Magic Online had the opportunity. I mean, in particular, it would be midweek content, right? We do these streams on the weekends and, you know, why don't more people watch Grand Prix? Well, there's no storyline that goes from one Grand Prix to the next. I mean, there's sort of the player of the year race. You know, eventually there was the, the Grand Prix master race that would get people to tune in the next time. But I felt like you ought to be able to build Magic Online content that would sort of have an, a, a narrative arc to it, you know, have a storyline that would go through a whole season. It's essentially, it's a reality TV show, right? It's like Survivor or something. So VMA came out and I instantly, okay, this is what I'm going to do. I think I streamed vintage once and, you know, immediately got this awesome audience. And I'm like, okay, I'm going to do something. I go, next pro tour I went to, I started with Luis. I go up to LSV. I'm like, if I put together this league, you know, would you want to play? And he was like, yes, absolutely. I knew Luis had played vintage. So he was in immediately. And I just started asking people. And yeah, a lot of people wanted, wanted to do it. I mean, it started as it, I think it felt more like a, like a fantasy football league or something. It's just a bunch of, you know, guys getting together to play for bragging rights. Um, but then we started streaming it and the audience is just was immediately four digits and quickly went up to, you know, 2000, 3000. Um, so yeah, I mean, I, I don't know if I actually, I don't remember the original question anymore. <laughs> the original question was what made you want to start it? And I think that we got that whenever uh, Vintage Masters was released online. Yeah. It just seemed like a very natural progression, very organic progression of what the next step should be. Yeah, for me, a lot of it was how do I marry, what's the best way to marry Twitch with Magic Online? And then Vintage Masters came out and I'm like, oh, well, this can just be the place for Vintage. Like right. nobody else is doing this. I would like to personally play in this thing. So let's put it together and see what happens. And then what happened was, the, I mean, the response was awesome. Do you think that Vintage Masters Online has made vintage and power more accessible to the greater community? Oh, yeah, for sure. I mean, it, you can buy into a vintage deck on Magic Online so much cheaper. And a lot of people have. Mm-hmm. I think it's both made it more accessible and it's also sort of allowed tech to evolve faster. Like the level of vintage play at real life tournaments, I think, is also just higher because there's so many good deck lists being generated now online. What would your advice be to a player wanting to get into Vintage Online? I mean, (laughs) buy the cards and play. (laughs) Okay. No, I mean, it's the big tournament is the monthly Power Nine tournament. I mean, that's the one that the the sort of the online community revolves around. You know, there are daily events. They don't always fire, unfortunately. I mean, it's weird because Wizards has moved so much to this leagues format now that the dailies sort of... There's sort of, there isn't a critical mass for a Vintage League, I don't think. But what there is, is you just go to... um, what is it? The open constructed matches, right? Go to tournament practice room, look for open constructed vintage matches. You can always get a game. Like it's never a challenge to get a game. It can be a challenge to find an event to compete for prizes in, but whatever. I mean, if you just want to play vintage, just go to open constructed tournament practice room, open up a vintage match and uh, people are always there playing. Very cool. And then, um, yeah, the monthly power nines are the, the highlight. And now VSL is on season five. 
we finished season five. Yeah, we're yeah. so we're we're on sabbatical, I guess. Mm-hmm. You know, decided we take a little bit of time off, but season six will be the next one when we start back up again. How do players compete to get onto the VSL? I, I mean, the short answer is I just pick who I think would be cool. <laughs> Um, the longer answer is, um, we do have a Patreon set up where people who, if people want to support the show, they can, you know, pledge a dollar an episode or, or whatever on Patreon. And so we set the league up where it's got a relegation system. If you finish last, you're out for the next season. Um, and what it is now is anyone who's tied for last is out for the next season. So what we've done the last couple seasons, which seems to work pretty well, is we'll then have a play-in tournament. So before we actually start season six, we'll have the play-in tournament for season six, where it's previously relegated Vintage Super League members. Plus, I'll go to the Patreon and I'll say, hey, who would you guys like to see? And I'll let the Patreon group sort of flesh out who should who I should go approach about that playing term. I mean, they won't always say yes. People are always like, you should get Finkel. I'm like, I've asked John. I've asked John multiple times. You know, I've offered sizable donations to gamers helping gamers. It's a lot of time commitment. John doesn't want to make it. Fair enough. Um, but I do go to the Patreon and say, who should I ask? And then it's up to them whether they're going to say yes or not. You've had some really cool people play. Yeah. Look, I've I've been around content for a while. I mean, I know a lot of the top players. I you know, it's not that hard to have a sense about who you think is going to be good on commentary or who's going to make for an interesting storyline. So that's it's mostly me just trying to set up interesting storylines and fun commentary. Randy, in addition to the vintage super league, you also put together the community super league. I did. Yes. And that has been also a huge hit. Oh, definitely. Yeah, that that's Definitely an effort. I think Wizards looks at the success of the Vintage Super League that, you know, they, they immediately saw that it was successful. Like it started on my Twitch channel and then very quickly, you know, Watsy asked, you know, we got it moved over to the Watsy Twitch channel. So it streams on twitch.tv slash magic now. And, you know, Watsy has been very supportive of that, that effort because I mean, ultimately that show is promoting their game, right? It's promoting magic online. It's promoting vintage. So. They've been very supportive, but I mean, they've also asked, you know, is there a way to do different shows? So we did, I did a standard super league for a while. Um, I did a, you know, I've, I've dabbled a little bit in modern. Um, I did a week of some other things. Community super league was very much them, you know, based on a conversation with them about, okay, how do we showcase sort of a different, you know, a different take on it. We want to showcase people just having fun playing Magic, you know, not so much the ultimate spike pro tour player competing for the, you know, razor edge and trying to win. That's great, but there's enough of that, right? There's a lot of that out there. It's what all the Super Leagues up to that point had been about, you know, Star City every weekend and Grand Prix and Pro Tours. So it was them saying, well, can we do something where we just showcase you know, the, the more, the more fun side of magic. I mean, obviously all we spikes enjoy trying to win, but you know what I mean? So I put together the community super league idea, you know, pitched it to them. They were like, yeah, 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 let's go do this. So, you know, most of the people, you know, just kind of went down the list of who I thought would be the best personalities. Watsi mostly liked my list. Most of those people said yes. And there you go. That's very cool. And the CSL plays a variety of formats, right? There was like a couple yeah, of we, theme decks and a couple of a little bit of standard. Right. I set it up where there was a new format every week. Uh-huh. So I thought that would be sort of an interesting way to sort of showcase the variety of magic, showcase people having fun in different formats. You know, some of the formats didn't work out great. You know, I think that the legacy tribal wars was just a misstep but i mean (laughs) i also think i learned a lot of it like a lot of it is i needed to i needed to do better i mean that one's on me i think i didn't do a good job of managing the expectations of the players about what was expected of them and so half the league showed up with legacy decks and half the league showed up with tribal wars decks Uh and then randomly the pairings for that week were like one from column a versus one from column b so it's just five blowouts yeah right (laughs) 
I don't know. I, I could have done a better job of saying, okay, look, here's what we expect you to do. And I think we did it. We learned. And then later on, you see that, you know, there were still formats where people could have built super competitive decks, but they didn't because that wasn't sort of what we were trying to accomplish. Or then you get to a format like Canadian Highland and we're like, look, gloves are off, go nuts, try to kill each other. That's <laughs> just what this format's about. So do that. And again, as long as people are on about the same power level, you know, you're going to get interesting matches. You just, I think you need, you have to make sure. I mean, this is true of, all magic in all scenarios, right? When people have access to similar cards or similar power levels in their decks, the game's awesome. Right. Doesn't matter if it's the kitchen table or the Pro Tour feature match, just the game is awesome. That is so cool. It was very entertaining. I, I, Good. I'm I glad was, you liked it. I was new to it and I was like, oh my gosh, this is so much fun. And also, I got to know a lot of people from the community that I didn't know before. Yeah, no, I was pretty happy with the diversity, right? We had, we had several YouTubers, we had several streamers, you know, we had a pro, you know, we had some podcasters. I thought we had a pretty good mix sort of hitting, hitting people along the side. I honestly, I kind of wish Cedric had said yes. I did ask uh. Cedric Phillips, you know, he said this publicly, you know, he, he declined. He didn't have enough time. I think he, he would have been a fun, a fun guy to have in the mix as well, but. Hopefully, Watsi will uh, will run it back. I'm hoping that Community Super League will return, uh, you know, Q1 January February timeline. But a lot of that is also dependent on Watsi's budgeting. The professor and Wedge they said in some charity streams that they would come out of CSL and they'd be like, "Oh man, we need a break because they just got so beat up in the game." So it was very funny. Yeah, it was good times. It was great. It was it was also a very interesting mixer of personalities. They got it. Mm-hmm. They got a lot of different corners of the community to come together, and it was just it was a great good. melting pot of everything. I'm was, very proud of it. Yeah, it was it was it felt to me like a almost like a cultural show. Yeah, I, I don't mean to sound like, oh, it was all me, because I Athena Huey deserves a ton of the credit as well. Yes, yes. I mean, a lot of the initial putting the pitch together that that I sold Watsi on was her, from her and her ideas. And, even you know, she does a great job every show as well. So Yeah, she's she's also a pillar of the community. Definitely. And, but yeah, no, she's, she's... I would be inviting her to play in it if she wasn't running the backside. <laughs> Randy, the community for Magic has exploded in the last few years. And I have even talked to a lot of people, and I personally think that Magic is going through a second renaissance. There's a lot of lots of fun to be had, a lot of diverse formats, a lot of people are picking up the game, a lot of new players as well. Do you think anything is missing from the community right now? Wow, I, I don't know what's missing. Like, I, I see the same arc that you do. I mean, I think a lot of the credit for that has to go to some of the some of the decision-making that Watsi did. You know, Greg Leeds came in as president of Watsi. I mean, wasn't great for my personal career, um, but you know, he made a couple changes. I think fundamentally the decision to take pre-releases and give them the lo- at the local store level and really reinvest in local stores as the recruiting stations for Magic. I think that has been had a tremendous impact on recruiting new players into the game. You know, the you know, the giant standalone pre-releases are awesome for the enfranchised players, you know, but I think that having those recruiting stations is crucial to the growth of the game. And so Wizards has done a good job, especially with some of their marketing decisions, I think, about getting new players into the game while R&D continues to make a great product so that they, you know, people don't leave. There didn't used to be 45-year-old Magic players, right? Now there are, right? Because, you know, we started playing in our 20s and just haven't stopped. And so, I mean, I think Magic should keep growing, whatever, until people start to die. It should (laughs) should have another 20, 30, 40 years before we have to really worry about that. But I mean, the, the game's awesome. I will say one thing I think is missing is where's the magic convention? Oh. Right? Where's the, you know, the Vegas GPs, the, the Master Series GP, sorry, Master Series, the, what was it? The Modern Masters GP in Vegas, I thought was closer to a magic convention than it was to a Grand Prix, right? It was an event. And 
you know, I think that Magic wants to have giant events. It wants to have destination events. And it wants to have those events that Grand Prix are okay at that. But I mean, the, the main event of the Grand Prix is fundamentally aimed at Spike, right? And casual players will come, they'll hang out, maybe they'll play the main event, you know, maybe they'll just play side events, whatever. But I mean, if you actually put together a Magic convention where it wasn't built around a premier event, but it was just a destination for Magic players far and wide, I think that that event could do really well, would do really well. I think it's probably the biggest thing that's missing right now. Yeah, I agree with you. Um, Christine Sprankle in season one, episode two, brought this topic to kind of like my attention. She was just like, I really wanted to see something like this. And I also talked to Brian Rowe, and he also said, well, like, yes, I've been following that conversation as well. And since then, it's been really brewing in my head. I've gone to several GPs. I've gone to pre-releases. I've just kind of traveled all around and just sure. really gotten myself deeper in the community. And now I'm like, yeah, it would be really awesome to sit down and talk to artists and have panels. And, you know, Comic-Con does a great job yeah. and they and they put together so much more and they've grown so much more than just comics now it's just a part of mainstream pop culture yeah, yeah, yeah. um and pax does a great job of that as well if you can get into pax right if, you, if there could be a magic centric one yeah i think the tricky bit is it ultimately comes down to the fact wizards isn't in the convention running business yeah you know, I think that, you know, they would have to develop, I mean, presumably they would want to run it themselves. I don't know who they could trust to farm something like that out to. You know, the business side of it is not trivial. I'm, I'm yeah. sure Watsi looked at the success of those Vegas GPs. I mean, look at the triple GP they've got coming up this year, right? You know, they see that that's a thing that there is a thirst for that people want to do. I don't know. Maybe they'll do something for the 25th anniversary. We're not that far away, right? Yeah, seriously, that would be really exciting. It's funny, you mentioned the triple GP. Here's an aside. Do you think any player is going to be able to play in all three GPs? Probably not. Oh, sure. Yeah, you just you have to get knocked out on day one. <laughs> I mean, just like running from table to table, from hall right. to Double hall. Right, double queuing is much harder. Playing all three of them is easy if you don't make day two. The tricky part will be, yeah, can you make day two? <laughs> double queue. Right. That would be a hat trick if you could. Yeah, that's <laughs> the Rietzel story from Pro Tour Paris back in the day. You know that story, right? No, I don't. Tell me. I, I think I vaguely heard about it. So... For a while, right now, Pro Tours are essentially private events that are done for the sake of the stream. Yeah. They're not private in the sense that they bar you from going in, but there's no side events. And, you know, Wizards has always tried to figure out what are they going to do with the Pro Tour event? Are there supposed to be a bunch of side events? Is it like, ooh, the Pro Tour's coming to town. Every Magic player should turn out and go. And they've had modes where it's been like that. They've had, you know, for... For the first, I don't know, 10 or 15 years, they would have a healthy slate of side events. But then where they really tried to blow that out, they got Pro Tour Paris. They decided they would have a Grand Prix at the Pro Tour. Oh. So it was a Pro Tour weekend in at Paris, Pro Tour Paris. This is, I don't know, 2012-ish? I forget the exact year. But it's Pro Tour. And they started the Pro Tour a day early so that if you didn't make day two of the Pro Tour, you could play the Grand Prix. Anyway, I forget. So they have this like insane weekend where it's a pro tour and a Grand Prix at the same site. And Paul Rietzel uh, makes top eight of the pro tour. There's a day off. So he plays the Grand Prix, makes day two of the Grand Prix. <laughs> and he literally ran back and forth between the pro tour top eight and day two of the Grand Prix. And made money at the Grand Prix. He wound up losing one match of the Grand Prix to like being busy playing his Pro Tour top eight match. And like there were other matches where he would like show up with time running out. And it was crazy. You should go back and read the stories. He, he literally double queued a Pro Tour and a Grand Prix and made money at both of them. That's insane. Yeah, he did not actually. He was in top eight contention at the Grand Prix down to like the last round or two. Wow. Um, yeah, no, that's that story's great. But I mean, the thing is, it's. 
the Grand Prix and the Pro Tour have such different demands. I think they're correct to not have run that back. It was just like the logistics of having that event in, you know, it's in the middle of Paris. There's thousands of people playing the Grand Prix. The Pro Tour is also there with all of its, you know, logistical stuff. So I think they're right to say, okay, fine. Look, the Pro Tour doesn't need to have a ton of side events. The Pro Tour should be about the Pro Tour and let's get really good at streaming it and sort of the way the Watsi as a business reacted was they said, well, let's just start streaming Friday and Saturday. We'll go to streaming all the rounds of the Pro Tour instead of just the Sunday. And that's how we'll sort of get our marketing bang for our buck. Randy, I also wanted to ask you, what's new for you? What's what's coming up? Oh, I mean, a lot of it for me is content generation for Twitch. It's like trying to put the next show together. Is it Vintage Super League? Is it Community Super League? Is it some other show? I've been doing a lot of that. I also do a fair amount of game design consulting on the side. I mean, I don't have a day job right now. I mean, I'm essentially, I think if you looked at my LinkedIn, I do have a day job. I'm a consultant, right? I'm running metagame consulting and uh, that business is doing great. But I mean, what that ultimately boils down to is sort of a collection of this contract and that contract and the other contract is sort of adds up to enough stuff to keep me busy and that's like the ultimate contributing being, my, contributing my fair share to the family's finances that's like the ultimate version of being fun employed <laughs> <laughs> yeah yeah no i mean a lot of it was when i left wizards i i went to an indie dev studio and we were working on you know trying to do digital tcgs and you know we had some good contracts but that the business is super tough and eventually most companies like that run out of money and they fall over and they die and that that's what mine did i mean it was a nice run but I was looking for my next job and I just figured out it's more fun to just talk about magic all the time. And, you know, I can make enough money just talking about magic all the time. So I'll just do that. You know what I was always thinking about is there should be a magic channel. I mean, you you wouldn't be able to get it on like basic cable, obviously, <laughs> but you could do a 24-hour Twitch channel that's like ESPN that just doesn't ever stop talking about magic. Oh, yeah. You could have like 25 shows or no, I mean, that's even a lie. You probably just need 10 shows, two hours long each and... Right, and then yeah. you could do your you could do your uh, uh, e news. You could have your gossip for the day, at sure. 10 and ten and six, and then you could have your pre release stuff, and then you could have your you know legacy in the middle of the night. I don't know. Totally, I really want to see something like that be created. Oh, tr- trust me, I've I've had lots of conversations about the uh, the, the pardon of the interruption. It's the one I imagine starting with. I don't know if you watch sports at all, but essentially the talking heads just sounding off on the events of the day. Like, there's always some Twitter controversy, right? Mm-hmm. It's, it's, it's funny. The tricky part is to like. So who who should I, who would I partner with for something like that? Imagine me doing being one of the talking heads sounding off on the issues of the day. Who's the other guy that I'm I'm arguing with? Um gosh, it, yeah, you would have to have a talking head show. Um let me think about this. Well, do you want someone that's really cantankerous and really contentious? Cuz if you did, then you would just take someone from the other side. You get someone like Yeah, I just, anybody's listening, tweet me. <laughs> I want to know who sh- who should I be trying to partner with on a show like that? Because a show like that could easily go for an hour, would be right. highly entertaining. And then, I mean, Magic Mike's is not that far from that. Yeah, but, yeah, exactly. Yeah, but yeah, but, I think I think it'd be fun to do something like that next. But I got to figure out. It's funny. Part of the trick is actually finding people that aren't afraid to speak their mind. Uh, I mean, like so many people are in a you know they're doing coverage for Wizards and they don't want to say things they're going to potentially piss Watsy off. But I don't know. Right. The environment and the ecosystem isn't big enough to have like a magic and Coulter and have it stick. Right. Like, it's funny how retiring from commentary is actually oddly liberating. Oh. Like, <laughs> I can just say what I think now, right? I don't have to worry about this anymore. <laughs>
So is this your first media appearance after after retirement from commentary? I guess so. I don't know. I was sounding off in comments on at the during the worlds is where I sort of had this epiphany. I'm just, you know, I mean, look, I think Watsi does a lot of smart things. I think Magic's a great game. So I think I'm mostly even even without worrying at all about what people are going to think. I think I'm mostly sort of enthusiastic. The game just is awesome. But yeah, I no longer had to sort of filter out that, well, this is just wrong. They shouldn't do that that way. Mm-hmm. Randy, I have some rapid fire questions for you. All right, shoot. Okay. Randy, rapid fire question number one. Of the five colors of magic, white, blue, black, red, and green, what is your favorite color and why? Blue. I, I like to be in control. You know, I like being the guy with the grip full of counter spells who's just sort of figured out everything you could possibly do and I'm already holding the answer to it. Yeah. What's your favorite blue card? My favorite blue card? Whispers of the Muse. Okay. Whispers of the Muse, because in particular, the strategy that I enjoy the most is just don't die, don't die, don't die, eke out incremental advantage. You know, Whispers of the Muse is this card where like, okay, I'm going to I'm gonna answer your things, but then eventually I'm just going to build up enough mana that I can use my mana for some incremental advantage and just start pulling ahead, pulling ahead, pulling ahead. And can you tell us what Whispers of the Muse does? Oh, sure. It's... Uh, you to draw a card. So one blue mana, draw a card, but it has buyback of five. Ah. So in the early game, you can just pay a blue to burn it, you know, cycle it for one mana, essentially. But once you have six mana, it's draw a card and it's back in my hand. I'm right back where I started. I'm just up a card. So Is it an instant? Instant, yes. Oh, so you do it at the end of your turn? That's, that's the whole point. Yeah. I love it. Okay. I love that card because I love cards like uh, cap size, which is one blue, blue buyback for three. So yeah, I think same set. Something, and so that buyback stuff is fantastic. Yeah, I mean, cap size leads to degenerate board states. I don't know. Whispers feels less offensive somehow. And <laughs> look, the truth is the power level of, of Whispers of the Muse is not actually all that high anymore, but it's still, yeah, I have, it's still a reasonable answer. You asked me favorite blue card, right? You didn't mm-hmm. ask me favorite card. Well, what is your favorite card? Uh, it's got to be Necropotence. Ah, right? <laughs> the, yep. the card won me the Pro Tour. So. <laughs> yes. Okay. Very fond memories of that one. Question number two. If you could change something about Magic the Gathering, what would it be? Wow, I'd be afraid to mess with it. Like, it's such an amazing game. I mean, look, I also, I was on the inside. I had the chance to sort of tweak things and push things. I, I guess I think the game, I wish the gameplay happened slightly slower. Like, I definitely think, yeah, I mean, if I can change anything, it would be sort of slow down the pace of constructed play by about a turn. I feel like there's some, there's some constructed decks where it's just, I don't want things to happen that quickly. I want to have time to, you know, kick up on mana development and not get completely destroyed. It's, I don't know that that's a very specific answer, but I do wish things happened slightly slower on a, on a turn by turn basis. So the sweet spot for constructed is maybe eight turns before things get degenerate. Well, I mean, you're lucky if you can get to five, if you're talking, you know, Pro Tour decks. That's right. You know, you, if you do put, I, I do this thing called the Gauntlet of Greatness, where I go back and play historical standard decks against each other. And like early 2000 standard just is slower. And that is the point where I was in charge. So, you know, you had decks like, I don't know that the Psychotog deck is an amazing deck. The, the creature Psychotog just was too good. And I don't know if you want upheaval to be a card, but, you know, the Madness deck as the base aggro deck. I think Madness was at a good speed where if you're like, okay, I'm going to play t- turn two Wild Mongrel. And then on turn three, I'm going to cheat out a 4-4 Trampler. Like that speed, if that's your aggro deck, I think you're in a good spot for Constructed where, okay, now your other decks don't have to be degenerate as well. I don't know if that was... I felt like that tempo for standard was in a better space than either the late 90s or more recent times. Hmm. Interesting. Interesting. I mean, scoreboard might say I'm wrong, right? The game's been growing so much that, like I said, it would be 
it would probably be wrong to go in and make significant changes given how well things have been going lately. Hmm. It's like, could you, if you could go back and change alpha, would you change anything about alpha? It's like, no, hmm. come on. The odds of this random card game turning into a worldwide phenomenon are so small That's at the right. point before it's published that changing anything would just seems crazy risky. Yeah. Even with all of its weirdness back then. <laughs> you right, know, you're like, it's Ancestral still Recall is too good. Like, don't care. The fact that Ancestral Recall was too good probably contributed to the growth of the game, right? And that was like the cycle of uh, each color right, having healing one Right, <laughs> Healing Salve, Ancestral Recall, same cycle. <laughs> Not quite balanced. Right, but I, I mean, I wouldn't mess with it even if I did have that, you know, weirdo time machine. What, what would you do? I mean, how, how would you fix Healing Salve? It would have to be like 10 life or 9 life, <laughs> you know, for it to be as broken as Ancestral Recall. Honestly, I, I like the elegance of the cycle. The fact that every color has, they called them the boons, yeah. right? Every color is one mana, get three of its thing. Like, I wouldn't mess with the elegance of that. Hmm. Like, the, I think cards are allowed to be bad. Okay. Like, it's <laughs> interesting when you, like, when you figure out, wow, you know what? Healing Salve just sucks. <laughs> That's a learning moment as a player. I don't need to be spoon-fed a bunch of cards at the same power level. Let some of them be bad. They can't all be aces. That's got to have some sevens in it. That's true. You have to have balance. Okay. A, I, a two? I really like that. I really like that, what you're saying right now, Randy, because like things have to have balance. Yeah. Yeah. And and for me, a diversity too. Like I want there to be good cards and bad cards. You know, you look at the limited formats from the early 2000s too, and like some of the cards, yeah, they're just bad. Like that card, you're not supposed to draft that card. That's something the game's gotten away from. And again, there's this scoreboard defense of maybe I was just wrong. Uh, I mean, it wasn't just me, but I know my boss was a big believer in bad cards as well, Bill Rose. But but yeah, I mean, I do think that those learning moments are important as people sort of figure out the game. <laughs> well, uh, I'll share with you a f on a funny aside. Recently, I was at a Lady Planeswalker Society event and I was drafting and it was um, Eldritch Moon Shadows Shadows. And I wasn't reading the card and I pulled a whole bunch of that Geist Scarecrow that makes all of your creatures more expensive by one colorless mana. And I was like, and I like didn't read it. And I was like, what are you talking about? This thing is awesome. And so I drafted like three of them and I was like, why does it keep getting passed to me? And then I was playing it and I was like, oh no, this is terrible. <laughs> this is really bad. Bad. This is not good at all. <laughs> so, there you yeah, go. At a learning moment. Randy, rapid fire question number three. If you could give something to every Magic player, what would it be? I have no idea how to answer this. What are, what are good answers people have given before? For who you are and that the fact that you're stumped, I kind of don't want to give you uh, hints. I kind of want you to like wade through it. But uh, some people have said, oh, I want to give everyone you know, a, a Black Lotus, or I want to give everyone, uh, you know, their legacy deck of their choice, or mm, I want to give everyone no basic fun. lands, or yeah, it, yeah, some of it's some of it's about like economics, other, others is about access. Some people have talked about, I want to give them all rule books, I want to give them the drive to get better, improve. I want to give people like tolerance. I want to give people sort of the ability to sort of live and let live, you know, make the environment welcoming to everyone. That if I could give something to every magic player, I don't know. I don't know quite how to phrase it, but I would somehow want to give them something that would just get people to stop being dicks from time to time. They need a real life healing salve sure. <laughs> for their emotional intelligence. Just like that's just, much more articulate than my answer. Yes, just to just to soften up a couple of uh, it's not road rage per se, but it's definitely like tilt, right? <laughs> like, yeah, and I, I mean it more sort of environmental outside the game more than inside the game. Mm -hmm. Okay, a little bit more tolerance, a little bit more emotional intelligence. Emotional intelligence. There you go. I'd like to give everyone a little more emotional intelligence to sort of create a more welcoming and and tolerant community.
a pinch, a bottle, a box, a heaping, <laughs> a heaping ladle well, full? Dep- depends who we're talking about now, doesn't it? <laughs> the appropriate dose. Okay. Okay. Question number four. Randy, what do you see in the future of Magic the Gathering? I do think that... I do see conventions. I see, you know, events that appeal across a bigger spectrum of sort of relationships with the game. You know, I mean, I think that if you have the Magic Convention to sort of pair off with the Pro Tour and the World Championships, you know, I think that Wizards is going to do a better job of speaking to all sides of the audience. Um, I think you'll see that in some of their in-streaming offerings as well. I mean, I definitely see streaming continuing to be an important way that people interact with the game. Um, some year Wizards is going to figure out their di- how to do digital. You know, that's, I think that's the most fruitful avenue for continued growth of the game. I mean, if Wizards can ever get their shit together when it comes to digital implementations of the game, the game's amazing, but you know, Magic Online, not a particularly good video game. Like it's a way to play Magic. I mean, I use the program, it functions, but if there could actually be a good digital implementation of Magic, I think that that's... That, that's really the avenue that has the most potential for sort of the next renaissance, the next boom in terms of new magic players. So I don't know, I don't know how far away that future is, but it's certainly the one I'm rooting for. Yeah, there is new leadership in Wizards right now with Chris Indeed. Cox, and yep. he comes from Microsoft's game development or digital. Yeah, he's he's done some game development. He w- yeah. he was on a I mean, he was on a business app at Microsoft, but he's got some some more game centric stuff in his background. There's no way to read that other than Hasbro saying, okay, Wizards, we definitely need to get more digital. I mean, that's clearly a statement from sort of the Mothership Corporation that it's important to them. Now, can they actually execute is the real question. It isn't a matter of them having good ideas. You know, they had good ideas back when I was there. You know, I was banging my head against that for a couple of years. Made the mistake of getting myself promoted out of R&D. Not something I recommend to my friends in R&D. But... If wizards can get that digital right, I mean, it's they've got great ideas. It's a question of can they actually execute against them? Yeah, there's been a lot of talk about the the new games, uh, the new digital products, Duels of the Planeswalkers, and also there was an investor announcement about an upcoming product called Magic Digital Next. So right. stuff is happening. Yeah, I mean, they're clearly they're clearly going to try. I hope it works. I hope it works too. And there was also talk about um, an upcoming Magic movie. Yeah, that's been around forever. I. I has been ongoing talk about magic movies for, I don't know, decades, probably. You'd think Hasbro definitely has enough sway. Like the Transformers movies were so successful that Hasbro has relationships with people in Hollywood to make movies happen. I don't know. I guess at this point, I've actually crossed over from being excited that Hasbro has this clout to like, well, okay, why haven't they used that clout to make a magic movie happen yet? BDM talked about he almost doesn't want to see a magic movie with all the <laughs> with all the Marvel movies coming out, with all the DC movies coming out, with all these other new franchises that are being revitalized and pushed forward. I mean, he listed like three, four huge sure. franchises. He was like, I do not want to compete in that space. <laughs> like, if anything, I, I want to stay out of that space. And then, you know, with like Netflix winning Emmys with their original series, hmm. BDM was like, you know, maybe we should want to push into that. Because I mean, like, I heard something through the grapevine, uh, Stranger Things. Mm-hmm. The 
producers and directors. Yeah, those guys play magic. They play magic, and they wanted that game to be magic, not D and D, because they played magic. But yeah, because they're set in the eighties, it can't be magic. They can't be magic. Yeah, I know that heard the same story. It's awesome. It's a great answer from Brian. You know, I I think that like post Lord of the Rings, pre superheroes taking over cinema, like there was a window where like why isn't there a magic movie following up on Lord of the Rings? Right, just you know, big budget blowout, you know, planeswalkers instead of Gandalf or whatever. I think there was an there was a window there where it it should have worked, but yeah, Harry Potter, Lord of the Rings, that was a great sphere for fantasy. And then think I don't, yeah, but somehow I don't understand why it didn't happen given Hasbro's clout and fantasy's clout and magic size. I mean, I guess the magic audience at the end of the day is. It's rel- it's small relative to the amount of money that gets spent on it. Like people spend so- individuals, people spend so much money on magic that like if you just count eyeballs, it's not that huge. I guess I don't know. Mm. Brian makes a good point though. It's it is a bit of a different landscape nowadays. Maybe it needs to be a Netflix original series, right? I mean, I mean, the bad magic movie is terrifying, right? That's the other thing, right? If there is a magic movie, it might suck, and that that would suck. Netflix, that's that's a good answer. I like Brian's answer. I I really like that answer. So, And last, Randy, do you have any asks or requests of the listening audience? Anything that they should consider or where they should follow you on social? Oh, I mean, if people want to follow me, I'm I'm R. Bueller on Twitter. You know, that's definitely an easy way to get in touch with me. Probably the best way. I mean, if people do want to see more Super Leagues, the Patreon page is set up. Um, I think it's, yeah, it's Patreon slash Super League, whatever. You you can find Vintage Super League is on Patreon for people who want to support that. Certainly... A way to <laughs> encourage Athena and I to actually get season six put together. I don't know. Fantastic. Um, yeah, maybe maybe we should get... Uh, I should at least get on there and try to vote up some really bad Magic players to try to play some Vintage Super League and just get crushed. Yeah, no, I definitely <laughs> I definitely like to be in conversations with the, the various Patreons. I mean, that's def- it's a place that I go to get suggestions, but it's also a place where people can talk to me. And favoriting my Twitch page is also useful to me, twitch.tv slash Randy Bueller. You know, I try to make myself pretty easy to find. I like to be part of the community and sort of be out there listening to what sorts of things people want. And I will have links in the show notes at kitchentablemagic.org. Randy, I just wanted to thank you so much for your time. And also, thank you so much for all of your contributions to the Magic community. You've made a really impact not only of my life, but also in the lives of so many other Magic fans, players, and people watching content. So, thank you so much. This is the best game ever made. You know, I, I love Magic. I hope that I have played some role in helping to make the mag- Magic better as a game, make the Magic community better as a community. It is certainly been a privilege to make whatever contributions I have managed to make. I hope you enjoyed my interview with Randy Bueller. Go say hi to Randy on Twitter at rbueller. That's R-B-U-E-H-L-E-R. Watch Vintage Super League at twitch.tv slash Randy Bueller. Randy also has a Patreon page set up for Vintage Super League and now Team Draft Super League. I'll have links in the show notes along with my photo of Randy's magic-filled basement, all at kitchentablemagic.org. This episode of Kitchen Table Magic was brought to you by Paragon City Games. Randy talked about playing his first magic tournament in a beekeeper's warehouse. There were cases of honey and beside them, magic singles. The magic community has come a long way since then, and in today's world, you'll find places like Paragon City Games. Instead of jars of honey, you'll find die-hard metal dice, handcrafted wooden deck boxes, legacy, modern and standard staples, sealed product, and tabletop games. And instead of being in a beekeeper's warehouse, Paragon City Games has a spacious and clean showroom with lots of elbow room for magic events. 
They're hosting all kinds of events, pre-releases, releases, game days, pre-TQs, and RPTQs, and they're streaming every week at twitch.tv slash paragoncitygames. And remember to spread the love with a like on Facebook and a follow on Twitter for Paragon City Games. They have great online reviews and it shows their commitment to excellent customer service for their player community. Thanks everyone for listening to this week's show. Randy Bueller finished up my four-part series with a legendary Magic coverage team. Season 2 has been all about the origins of the Magic community. And speaking of origins, I'd like to thank and acknowledge my first Twitter follower, Caitlin. Caitlin is also my newest Patreon supporter, and I want to thank you, Caitlin. Your contribution means a lot to me. And listeners, if you're enjoying the show, please consider supporting Kitchen Table Magic on Patreon. Just a few bucks goes a long way, and you'll get access to extra audio content, behind-the-scenes show notes, and special gifts from my interviews. Head on over to patreon.com slash kitchentablemagic and become a supporter today. I want to thank all of my Patreon supporters, Brian, James, Marcus, Alex, Trevor, and Caitlin for your support. Thank you so much. You're all awesome. Thanks to everyone tuning into this week's show. I'm always here to connect with you and answer your questions. Email me, sam at kitchentablemagic.org. Like the show on Facebook at facebook.com slash kitchentablemagicpodcast. Follow me on Twitter at KTM Podcast. Subscribe to the show on iTunes, Google Play, SoundCloud, Stitcher Radio, and mtgcast.com. Coming up in the next episode of Kitchen Table Magic... So they sit down to play, Matt versus Andrew. Matt looks at Andrew and says, well, you and I both know that you're going to crush me. You've been destroying everybody in the tournament, so you should let me go first. And Andrew, for whatever reason, says, all right, sure. (laughs) (laughs) And Matt proceeds to have a draw something like Tundra, Mox, Jet, Soul Ring, Mana Vault, Mind Twist for six on turn one. Like he just mind twists Andrew's almost his entire hand on the first turn of the game. And in their third game, Matt opens with Mana Vault, Black Lotus, Land, Mox, Mind Twist for seven. Oh my gosh. On turn one in the finals. So two of the three games, Matt kills Andrew on turn one with Mind Twist. Wow. And wins the tournament after that, obviously, because, you know, you get Mind Twisted for seven in 1994 era magic, you don't come back. (laughs) There's no way to come back. I mean, maybe if you have balance in your deck or if you Black Lotus off the top, followed by Wheel of Fortune or something, but you basically don't come back. You've heard of the Usenet groups, you've heard about keeping deck lists secret, and now you're going to hear it from the man himself. He's the guy that struck fear into the heart of the best early Magic players. I'm talking to the creator of the deck himself, Brian Weissman. Join me and legendary pro player Brian Weissman as we dive into the past, all on the next episode of Kitchen Table Magic.